welcome to our presentation titled Reducing Cancer Through Alcohol Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment. This podcast is produced by the Intertribal Council of Michigan's Three Fires Comprehensive Cancer Prevention and Control Program, funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The intent of this podcast is to promote an alcohol screening and brief intervention as a standard protocol which is implemented for all adults in tribal and primary healthcare settings. This technical assistance activity is presented by the Three Fires Comprehensive Cancer Consortium and hosted by the National Native Network, which offers technical assistance and resources for commercial tobacco and cancer prevention and control throughout Indian Country and the Indian Health Service Clinical Support Center. Your presenters today are... Kathy Edgerly, Master of Health Science, Community Health Comprehensive Cancer Consortium at the Intertribal Council of Michigan. Angela Asa, Physician Assistant, Family Medicine at the Nimke Memorial Wellness Center for the Saginaw Chippewa Indian Tribe. And Dr. Daniel Maloney, Chief Medical Officer at the Bay Mills Health Center. We are pleased to offer continuing education credits for participants in this presentation through the Indian Health Service Clinical Support Center. No financial interest support was used to fund this activity. This activity is designated one contact hour for nurses and physicians. To obtain a certificate of continuing education, you must submit a completed survey. A link to the survey is available in the episode's show notes. By the end of this presentation, participants will be able to recognize the relationship between alcohol and several types of cancer in American Indian and Alaska Native communities, examine the importance of including a brief intervention and referral to treatment along with a culturally appropriate alcohol screening approach, and develop strategies that integrate culturally appropriate screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment, ESPERT, for alcohol for tribal health systems. This activity features a raw discussion of alcohol use intended for an adult audience. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you, and now, Kathy Edgerly. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining me today to discuss the important topic of cancer prevention through screening for alcohol use. Before we start this discussion, let's begin with introductions. My name is Kathy Edgerly, and I work with the Intertribal Council of Michigan on our Three Fires Comprehensive Cancer Consortium program. It's nice to have representation from two tribal health clinics participating in today's presentation. Welcome to each of you. Hi, my name is Angela Asa. I'm a physician assistant here at the Saginaw Chippewa Tribe in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. And I'm Dr. Daniel Maloney, Chief Medical Officer of the Bay Mills health center which is part of the bay mills indian community in brimley michigan i appreciate both of you taking the time today to discuss the important topic of alcohol screening as a strategy to reduce the risk for cancer in a few minutes we are going to listen to a pre-recorded interview that i had with leah Parrish. leah is the chief judge and a tribal member of the bay mills indian community she was gracious enough to share her personal story about alcohol addiction and her journey towards recovery. She has been sober for over 10 years 
and now she is helping others who also suffer with addictions. But before we listen to this interview, I want to raise this point. Many people know that alcohol can be highly addictive and a harmful substance, but I don't think that it is well known that alcohol is also a serious risk factor for cancer. According to the CDC, cancer is the second leading cause of death for American Indians and Alaska Natives. What are your thoughts, Dr. Maloney? In the Bay Mills Tribal Clinic, we conduct an annual wellness exam with patients and we include a brief screening about alcohol use. And I do think that most patients are not aware of the health consequences of alcohol use related to cancer. We discuss other cancer screenings and patients are, have come to uh, expect some of those discussions, but I don't think they understand how important alcohol use is towards cancer risk. I agree. We see the same thing here at the Saginaw Chippewa Tribe at, here at the Nimke Clinic. It sounds like uh, your tribal clinics um, are aware of and on track with screening for alcohol, which is so important. Also from the CDC, excessive alcohol use contributes to over 88,000 deaths each year for all adults of all races, which makes alcohol the third leading preventable cause of death. For those of you that are interested, tobacco is the first leading preventable cause of death, and poor diet, physical inactivity are the second leading cause. But the key word is preventable. And with that, I think that there needs to be more patient education about alcohol's harmful effects, including that it is a strong risk factor for cancer. Yes, many people are aware of alcohol's addiction qualities, but they are not aware that drinking alcohol increases a person's risk for six types of cancer. Wow. Yes, alcohol is linked to almost every organ in the digestive tract, including mouth, pharynx, larynx, esophageal, stomach, colorectal, and it is also linked to the liver and breast cancers. And the more you drink, the greater your risk. When you drink alcohol, your body breaks it down into a chemical called acetaldehyde, which damages your DNA. And when DNA is damaged, a cell can begin growing out of control and can create a cancer tumor. Mm. Unfortunately, the cancer risk is real. And according to the CDC, when alcohol is combined with commercial tobacco, the risk of cancer increases even more. Dr. Asa and Dr. Maloney, how do your tribal clinics provide this important information to your patients? Well, like in most clinic settings, there isn't a lot of time available to provide detailed patient education during a medical visit. But the first step is to screen every patient for alcohol use, and we do this at least annually. Yes, we do the same at NIMKI. Screening for alcohol use is standard protocol for every patient at their annual visit. Great. Well, I know that there is more to this conversation in regards to what happens after someone screens positive for excessive alcohol use. But before we dive into that, let's listen to the interview with Leah Parrish. A little background. Leah is not only the chief judge for the Bay Mills Indian community, she also serves on their Healing to Wellness Court, which is an alternative to a traditional justice system the Healing to Wellness Court not only addresses the legal implications brought on by substance abuse, but also strives to heal through physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual avenues 
all which help on the path to sobriety. What we are about to listen to next is Leah's story about her deeply personal experience with alcohol addiction. It is our hope that those who listen will gain a compassionate understanding and perspective in order to better help others who suffer from addictions. Leah, you told me before we started a little bit about your dad, and I was just curious about the rest of your family. Can you tell me a little something about your family? Um, wow, that's a complicated question right off the bat. It doesn't seem like it would be loaded, right? Um, my mom has been married six times, and my dad has been married three times. So my family is a little bit like the United Nations in terms of siblings, cousins, families, aunts, uncles, grandmothers. Um, but the family I'm closest to would be my father's side. They um, are where they're the native side of my family. My mom's not native, and therefore that side of my family isn't. Um, and so I've been here uh, on Bay Mills Indian Reservation permanently since I was 13. Um, and I grew up off the reservation first until then, but I always visited. Um, but the family I'm closest to is right here on the reservation, and that would be my dad, uh, my brother and my sister that are in the area, and then my aunts and uncles, and I have at least four unofficial Indian mothers. <laughs> so <laughs> try explaining that to people when you're out and about in public, when you call everybody mom or auntie, you know, but that's just how our culture is, so yeah. So you um, have a close family, and you've moved away, but you said you moved back? Yeah, um, I had... So um, my mom and my dad had me while my dad was in law school. And then they came back here. They divorced. Um, my mom went back to Escanaba, and I went with her until I was 13. And then I moved with my dad here in the reservation. And then I was here, um, gosh, I don't remember what year that would have been. So that would have been like 91 or 90. Um, and then, so I was here till 2008 when I, I moved uh, to Lansing for a couple years to go to college and to law school. And then, uh, and I brought my three kids with me. And then we moved back in, I think, 2011. Um, and so we've been back since then. So I left for a while to go away to school. But for the most part, this has been where I've spent the bulk of my life. Okay, that's great. Um, what do you do for fun when you're not working? or taking care of children? Well, before corona, that would have been an easy question to answer, but since corona, I haven't had time for fun. Um, I, <laughs> I always refer to myself as a wild little Indian. I love to run through the woods. Um, we go camping, we go fishing, we go hunting, we go gathering. I just love to be in the woods, under the trees, where there's no people and just the animals and or the water I the water is um so meaningful to us in our lives so we're always at the big lake too if we get any time um I was just thinking yesterday though how desperately I need to make some more time for that because summer's too short here that is for sure I can definitely agree that <laughs> it's beautiful here um Leah I would like to talk to you a little bit about your experience with alcohol um, when did you start drinking? 
Um, well, I can tell you that I have been exposed to alcohol probably since before my earliest memories. Um, I think it was a different time. Um, and alcohol was a lot more acceptable. And so I know that um, at family get-togethers, et cetera, there would be, you know, um, drinks offered to the kids or a little glass of wine, a half a glass of wine or something. I also remember going um, to the ball diamond, to the ball tournaments with my dad as a young child, and um, everybody there would be drinking. And actually, we were talking about this around here in the last couple months. Um, back then, parents didn't bring juice boxes. You know, I have three children, and I have a, I have a new grandchild. Um, but juice boxes weren't a part of our, our life. Um, so I can remember running around in the summer and being hot and dusty and dirty and thirsty. And the answer was, here, just take a drink of this. And it was a Pabst Blue Ribbon, or um, you can see the vintage cans in my head. Um, so that's I, I truly believe that that's where the drinking started. That's how it was. There, there was no, you know, nowadays you pack snacks and there's, but back then it, it was kind of a wilder, freer time. And so um, I absolutely remember drinking beer as a small, small, probably as a toddler. Um, my first time becoming intoxicated, I was seven years old. Um, it's taken me time to, I think, more than understand to acknowledge, because um, it, it is painful, I guess, to think about it. But I believe that my mom was dosing us with alcohol to have us sleep. And so the first time I became, that I can remember being intoxicated, I was seven. And I was completely obliterated drunk. Um, and I remember how good it felt and how much I loved it. And I remember asking my mom why it felt like that. And she just thought it was funny. And I remember even um, at seven being scared for a moment, being like, but isn't this bad for me? And she just laughed and said, oh, no, go to sleep. You'll sleep it off. So, um, you know, I guess alcohol has been a part of my life, my entire life, or at least as far back as I cannot even remember. Um, it's just kind of always been there. So. When did you know that you had a problem with alcohol? You know, there's different levels of knowing. There's, like, knowing there's an issue, and then there's, like, knowing that this will destroy my life if I don't do something about it. I knew very early on that something wasn't right because at the age of 15, I started drinking and didn't want to stop. Um, I knew I couldn't control it, but whether I was acknowledging that, I, I don't think so. You know, there's a huge level of denial there. Um, I knew that getting pregnant kept me from drinking. I knew that I had to take measures to try to control my drinking. I knew that when I was in college, I would have to leave myself um, uh, it's not a voicemail back then. It was answer, you know, a message on the answering machine um, about where I was in the middle of the night because the next day I I was blacking out every night, so I never knew where I was or what I had done. Um, so I knew I was having to take steps to try to control what I was doing, and in my head that was an issue, but it wasn't. That was young. That was um, I was seventeen. But you know, it's taken me to become an adult to realize that adolescents can be alcoholics. Um, that just wasn't something that I had ever put together in my mind. Also, it was completely acceptable behavior um, in the community, in the family, amongst my friends. 
my behavior was completely acceptable. And so that wasn't going to cue me in. Um, when I finally realized that I had to, I had a drinking problem and I had to stop, was I had gotten into a situation in life where between my anxiety, my depression, and circumstances, I had crawled into bed um, with my three children and my two dogs. And we were in bed for 136 hours straight. I know that because at the time, that's how many episodes of Grey's Anatomy existed. And Grey's Anatomy playing was the only thing that kept my anxiety at a level where I didn't feel like I needed to be admitted to the psych ward. At this point, my drinking had become so out of control that um, I couldn't sleep without it. And I didn't drink to have fun. I would my I would fight it all day. I would promise myself I wasn't going to do it and when I could not stand it anymore, I would get a fifth of vodka and I would drink it straight, not with a chaser. Uh I'm not into fancy drinks. I don't like the way alcohol tastes. I fucking love the way it makes me feel, pardon my language. And um I would drink an entire fifth and if that wouldn't knock me out, then I'd drink and drive and go get another one. Um the insanity in the response to that when you sober up is so terrifying as you become physically dependent on it. You can't eat anymore. You can't think straight. You can't even cognitively function. I mean, you, you can't shower, you know? Um, and so at that point, I made a decision because I, I knew it was bad when the kids crawled in bed with me. And part of that was because I, I didn't want to get out of bed anymore to feed them. And I didn't care about feeding myself. I would have laid there and wasted away to death because the only place I was going when I got out of that bed was to get more booze to reduce my anxiety enough to sleep, to stay in that bed. And it was when the dogs crawled in bed with us, as crazy as it sounds. Um, I looked around. I remember I rolled over, and I could still hear Grey's Anatomy playing, and I looked around, and I was like, my God, like I'm not only killing myself, I'm killing the children and the dogs. And... Um, I picked up the phone. Um, for a year, at least, I had been thinking about getting sober, but I couldn't, either I couldn't figure out how to do it, or there was some obstacle within me preventing me from doing it. I, it's hard to explain, because I knew something was wrong and I needed to change or I was going to die, or something really bad was going to happen. And I knew that AA existed, but I also knew that I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it in the newspaper. I couldn't find it in the phone book. I would talk to other people and they'd say, well, go to a meeting. And I'd say, well, where's the meeting at? And well, I don't, it's anonymous. And I couldn't, I couldn't connect to it. And, um, and honestly, you're so busy trying to fight this, this other voice in your head that's saying, you need to drink, you need to drink, you need to drink, you need to drink, that you can barely take a shower, much less get out to get a newspaper or pick up a phone to call a stranger. At that point, you're so sick that it, it's impossible, and I couldn't emerge from that that funk. Um, thank God my sister loved me enough to confront me. I was waiting for that. She was a police officer. She picked me up. She said to me, you're going to treatment, or I'm calling child welfare. And um, my first reaction was like, no, I'm not. And then like 37 seconds later, I looked at her, and I was like, no, you're right, I am. I am. And I said, what do I do? How do I how do I get there? Help me. You're right. I, I need that, and I want to do that, and I will do it tomorrow if you tell me how. And she said, because she worked for the tribe, she was a tribal police officer, she said, you have to call Behavioral Health, and they have crisis services, and they will help you. And that's how I got the number. 
and the counselor I called that day saved my life. I will never forget her. Um, I called her and I said, hi, I'm an alcoholic and I need some help. And I cannot tell you the relief at that moment. And there was absolutely zero judgment. And it was the first time I felt like I could be honest with somebody. And the burden that was lifted was indescribable. And I said to her, "I'm here's the deal. This is where I'm at in my life. I am going to kill myself. So I have decided that the only reason I wouldn't kill myself is if my life gets better. And I know what will make my life better is being sober. And I don't know if I can be sober because I've been drunk for a real long time. But I'm going to give you 30 days and I'll do anything you ask me to do. I, absolutely anything. And at the end of 30 days, if it's better, I won't kill myself. I will keep going. And she said, I'm going to help you. But it was wild because this was December 21st of 2010. I'll never forget that day because I said to her, what do I do? I have three children and I have custody of them. And their father and I at that time were in a, a horrific place. The situation was absolutely horrific. And I said, it's almost Christmas. And not only is it Christmas, we have Christmas Eve, we have Christmas Day, we have my mother's birthday, we have my birthday, we have my grandparents' anniversary, we have New Year's Eve, we have New Year's Day. And I can't leave my family for these. What a horrific person I would be. And she said to me something I've never forgotten and I've always shared with everyone. She said, Leah, if you stay for Christmas, you may not live through the next year. The very best gift you could give your children is to go to treatment. And that, it, perfect sense. You're absolutely right. Me being here is doing nobody any good and I will sit here and I will get sicker and they will get sicker and you're right, I'm going and I did. And it was hard. Um, but those kids understood. I'll tell you what, before anybody else understood, those kids understood because they didn't want drunk mom in the house. And I can't blame them because drunk mom is a monster. You know, drunk mom is terrifying. It doesn't matter if someone is an abusive drunk. Drunk people are terrifying because they're impulsive and unpredictable. And children should never have to live with that. And I truly believe that they believe that that's probably the greatest Christmas present they've ever been given. <laughs> Sorry, I could go on and on on that. It's wonderful. Um, uh, so I have another question. Did um, During this time before your sister picked you up and before you made these steps, did you ever have anybody talk to you or reach out to you or, or tell you that this was hurting them or that you were hurting yourself or reach out to you? Well, I I think in the early, in the beginning, my parents saw me as being a, a teenager and being impulsive and they thought it was more of that than a substance issue. So my family never intervened. And um, they also have a strong tradition of alcohol being present at every celebration or some of them every day. Um, so, it, you know, people hesitate to do that because if they're going to point out your flaws and they might have to look at their own and they don't want to do that. Um, and I think they thought that maybe I would mature out of it. Um, and I also erected a lot of barriers between myself and my family, in part because of the substance use, in part because of other things. Um, <laughs> I, I have to say, though, I have to give my mom props because my mom has been married to... Um, people who have had substance issues. And so even though she didn't live a perfect life, she always said to us, um, you know, it's not right. And I think at least having someone plant that seed that this isn't right, you know, I mean, she might not have been able to get rid of the pink elephant, but at least she could talk about it. 
Um, so that did give me an ability that I know a lot of people with substance use disorders don't have, and that's the ability to verbalize it and to feel free to do so. So even though we lived in sickness, we had the ability to point at it in safety, to call it what it was. Um, and, and so I think that was a real gift she gave me. Um, but in terms of intervening or calling me out, that's just not something that people do a lot of around here because a lot of the things that I might do when I'm intoxicated is the same thing that everybody else in, in my friend's group is, are doing on their weekends while they're intoxicated and most people aren't remembering what they're doing and they don't really want to get together on Monday to talk about it because some of it's pretty dark shit um, and so you just roll on you know um, my my ex-husband now at the time was a severe alcoholic and he began to devolve first and so for a long time I had someone that I could point to and say you're the problem in this family it wasn't me and then um, you are the reason that my drinking got out of control. And so he wasn't going to tell me to sober up because he was in his own addictions. Um, no, I, you know, I think we all kind of knew I had an issue, but I think we also knew that so many others had an issue that there was, it, it until it becomes a crisis, it, it wasn't a thing. And I, honestly, as sad as this might sound is, I think my family may have had a discussion that went something like, Leah's too drunk too often to take care of her children. And if she doesn't get a grip, we're going to have to. And we don't want to, so we're gonna make Leah get her shit together. It is really what I think the conversation was. I don't, I don't think it was like, we're so worried about Leah and we care about her and we support her. I think it was, we don't wanna have to, um, captain her life we're not going to take that on and so she better do it um but god bless them for whatever reason that they intervened and it worked so it was what i needed um and they're right you know i am responsible for my life so well thank you for sharing that um i feel like i could just ask all sorts of questions and go on and on it's just a, a very deep discussion um so the question, what motivated you to begin your path to sobriety was, it sounded like it was a self-realization. Yeah, it is. It has to be. Um, before I did it, when I was in my cups, I was as judgmental as the next. And I thought, what the hell is wrong with Joe, Joe Blow that he can't get his act together to take care of his children? I always took care of my children, and I and my thing would have been if so, you know if it was affecting my kids, I, I'd get clean and sober. If it was affecting my job, I'd quit drinking. That's not true. None of that is true. There is not a single person on this earth that can get sober for anyone or anything else. There is no motivating factor that can keep someone clean. The thing that keeps people clean, and I know this not only based on my experience, but working with addicts from every walk of life, whether it be opiates or uppers or downers or alcohol or exercise, or it doesn't matter what it is. It, it's truly, it's cliche and you know, it's it's passed over, but the bottom line is you have to get sick and tired of being sick and tired. You have to be so sick of being sick and tired that you don't ever want to feel that sick again. And you have to take the energy that you put into finding alcohol or your drug of choice, and you have to take that energy and put it into, you change the goal from, I'm going to seek alcohol or heroin today, and it becomes, I'm going to seek this other thing which keeps me from the sick and tired, and what that thing is, is sobriety. Addictions are coping mechanisms out of control. That is what they are. 
and the only way to stop it is to get new coping mechanisms. But the desire to stop must come from within, and that will never come no matter how much you love or care for other people. Love is not what does it. It is an actual, it, it is a desire for avoidance of that thing because the negative consequences have become so large that it is less painful to change than it is to stay the same. When it becomes more painful to stay the same, that is when people change. That is the moment. We are driven by pain. We are not driven by love and all of flowers and shits and giggles and butterflies. Humans are driven by the avoidance of pain. And if getting clean and sober will hurt me less than doing what I've been doing, then that's what I'm going to do. And, and that's what happened for me. Um, it's what keeps me sober to this day. And there's a thing they teach you. They say you play the tape, right? So when I get a craving, the first thing I think of, the first thing anyone with an addiction thinks of is the relief. If I go in that bar right now and I get a shot, I'm going to take a shot. And what am I going to feel? My, my chest is going to get warm. That warmth is going to spread throughout my body. My shoulders will lower. I begin to relax. My mind slows down. I feel like I can think clearly. Oh, all of a sudden I've washed the week off. We go to that part. We go to the conviviality of being with friends and camaraderie and the good times. We don't think about when we wake up in jail feeling like we want to kill ourselves because we now have an active child welfare case, maybe no driver's license, maybe we killed somebody drunk driving, maybe we just destroyed property drunk driving, maybe we just ruined relationships by drinking and dialing or drugging and talking to people. You know, we don't play the tape to the end. We play the tape to the beginning where it feels good. And so that pain that allowed me to get better is the same pain that allows me to stay better because when I think I want that relief, I play it to the end where I woke up on the floor in jail. Twice, by the way. I may be the judge, but I have been to jail multiple times. And so I understand it uh, from every point of view. Okay, thank you. That was, that was really helpful information. So you've been sober 10 years, is that right? Um. So this is 2020, and so this is, I'm in my 10th year of sobriety. I did have a relapse in my first year. At nine months, I relapsed, I went back to jail. Woke up on the floor in jail again. In AA, they call it a working relapse. They say, if you think that this program isn't for you, if you think that maybe everybody around you is wrong and that you can control your drinking, go out and do it, go drink. And I wanted to, I wanted to. I wanted to be like everybody else. But my dad, he picked me up from treatment. The day he picked me up from treatment, he said to me, you know, babe, I don't think you're an alcoholic. I think you'll be able to control it. And I thought, son of a bitch, you just ruined it. You just ruined it. Because right in that, we, we hadn't left the parking lot. And my mind was in the right place. But for the next nine months, I kept hearing from my man, the, my, my man, my dad, the one man I respected so much was, you're not really an alcoholic. And when you get your shit together, you'll be able to join the rest of us. And so I, I tried nine months out. I was like, I want to be like everybody else. And lo and behold, when I drink, I break out in handcuffs. And I woke up in jail again. So um, that, that did it. I don't, I don't like jail. I I'm, really don't like jail. <laughs> When did you feel that you were starting to succeed on your path to sobriety? Wow. Boy, that's hard. I don't know. Because part of me felt successful because I had to wait for a couple days to get into treatment, and I knew I could die in that window. 
And so I had to contact a friend of mine who's very traditional, very culturally connected, and she came and stayed with me for a couple days to keep me alive. She said, go ahead, do what you gotta do, use, drink, whatever, I'll be here. And uh, I guarantee you she kept me alive. I don't remember those days. Um, so the fact that I was willing to get into her car, still drunk and drive to treatment, I, I felt pretty pumped about that. <laughs> um, when I survived the first 24 hours, which were absolutely horrific, I checked into treatment, it was funny, everybody there was um, there for heroin, and I wasn't familiar with heroin at the time. And they were also worried about me, and I you know, I was so judgmental. You know, you have a heroin addiction. At least my drug I can buy at the, the store. You know, you, you're junkies. And all these junkies, you know, were worried about me. And I said, well, why are you worried about me? And they said, because you know what, Leah? We might feel like we're going to die, but you could. And I was like, what? And that's where I learned that alcohol detox and alcohol addiction can kill people. Um, and coming out of it is much more dangerous than other drugs. And uh, I, I understand much more intimately now when it comes to other substances what that looks like, but I didn't at the time. Um, and so when I survived the first day, I felt pretty damn successful because the night before I thought I was going to lose my mind. Um, I thought I had lost my mind. It, it was really bad. Detox was the worst day of my life. Um, but then you come back and then you don't feel successful. Okay, so at first you're excited. You get your 24-hour chip. I've I've done this. Like, okay, and then each each five minutes you get through is a success. But then you know treatment's done. You come home, and you return to a place where it's not acceptable to be clean and sober. You now have to basically isolate because nobody wants to hear about the principles you now have to live your life by if you want to maintain uh, your successful life. Things have to change, and nobody has any interest in that. They could care less because they don't want to do that. Um, and so then you're alone and isolated and you sure don't feel successful. You feel scared and sad and lonely and overwhelmed and broke. Um, and you just don't know how you're ever gonna climb out of this pit, you know? And then you do. And I think it's it takes a few more years of coming to terms with yourself, I think you have to get far enough down the road to look back because addiction generates shame, so much shame and so much judgment. Nobody judges the addict harder than the addict judges themselves. Why do you think we have such maladaptive behaviors? Why do families think we're avoidant? Because we hate ourselves. We hate who we've become. We think there's nothing good left in there and that even if there is, nobody cares enough to want to be there for that. And so why do it? Because nobody cares anyway. Um, so no, you don't feel successful. You absolutely do not. And you have to rebuild a life. And if you're really, really fortunate slash unfortunate, you might have to do that alone. And you might have to do it in a way that you have other people depending on you for survival. And you might not know where their next meal is gonna come from. You might not have enough gas money to get to an AA meeting. You might not have internet to get to an online meeting. You, And so that doesn't feel like success. I think it takes a long time until the substance abuser gets down the road and can look back and go, oh my God, look at what I've survived. Look at what I've accomplished. Um, but it, in the beginning, it is so overwhelming and so huge, you don't think you're ever gonna do it. And while you're doing it, you're castigating yourself because you created the situation. I don't know when you feel successful because it's always a battle. I'm, I'm in my 10th year and every day is a new 24 hours. 
every day is a new day that I could choose to use or I could not. Am I successful in my sobriety? No. And so maybe the answer is you're never successful. If you're truly successful, you're never successful. Because if you call it good, you'll stop doing what you're doing and you won't stay sober. So maybe that's the answer. I'm not sure. So if I'm hearing you right, are you saying sobriety gets easier over time or doesn't get easier over time? It doesn't. It doesn't. It goes from being the only thought on your mind around the clock nonstop all day long. It slows down. Um, as you get better, the cravings reduce, the thoughts reduce, as you don't have to think about using your coping mechanisms as they become second nature, it becomes quieter. It becomes more more peaceful. But And I'm sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought. That's, okay, no, that, this is really great um, information. It, it's never easy, I mean. What were, what were some of those coping mechanisms that you used? Oh, gosh. Um... I'm really good at dissociating. I'm excellent at coping in chaos, which is probably why I have the job I do. Um, I was raised in that sort of abusive, up-in-the-air, children of alcoholic parents environment, and so my coping mechanisms, I'm, 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 amazed. I'm the best codependent you'll ever meet. I could, you bring me an alcoholic, or you bring me someone with criminal behaviors, I will save their soul. Girlfriend, I will take an unemployed, uneducated, toothless fool and turn him into a prince, right? I, I can save anybody. And again, that probably reflects on why I choose to do what I do today. Um, I am, that's part of my negative behaviors. I, part of how I feed myself has been through my relationships. I've fed that sickness. And so um, concentrating on others rather than dealing with my own stuff has been a coping mechanism. I also am great at dissociating. Like, I, I don't know what it is. I think when you grow up in abuse, when the crisis is going on, sometimes it feels better because I, I don't know if you're familiar with abuse, but anyone who's ever lived in an abusive environment, it always feels like you're walking on eggshells. It's just everyone's holding their breath, waiting for the next big bad thing to happen. And then when the big bad thing happens, it's a, it's a relief. Because at least now the big ugly bad thing that we knew was going to happen is going on. So we're actually acknowledging it. We're not just feeling it and tiptoeing around it. And so I'm really good at pretending and tiptoeing. And then I'm really good at coping in a crisis too. And so, you know, and then I think just denial, 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 denial. It's not me, it's work. It's I'm not as bad as everybody else. I can point 10 fingers at 10 drunks worse than me. I have my kids. My kids haven't, you know, I go to work every day. I still earn a paycheck. So, yeah, I think that's just a denial is the hardest. It's, it's the biggest. But now in terms of, I'm sorry, I guess maybe I went on the wrong tangent. Maybe you mean now healthy coping? skills uh, I'm no that those are legitimate coping skills but I'm also interested in learning about resources so you originally started with um, was it your tribal behavioral health did, person yes. that you called could you tell me yes. a little more about how that worked with you so back then at the tribe things were newer and now things have changed a lot since then um, so originally I connected with behavioral health so they got me into treatment they have the ability to tap into funding sources that the rest of us have no idea even exist, um, they were able to get me into treatment. And then when I came back into the community, before you leave treatment, they set you up with um, outpatient services. And so they contacted Behavioral Health because my referring clinician worked there, and they set me up for outpatient services. So I knew that before I came home, I had somebody waiting for me. That was awesome. And then they also, in, if, if you go to treatment at the beginning of the journey, they kind of set you up with a plan, like you need to do 90 meetings in 90 days, um, or a lot of them. Some of them might include things like 
um, going to Al-Anon meetings, you're getting literature, doing outpatient services, doing cultural things like talking circles. Maybe you need to see the doctor. Maybe you need some medication to deal with anxiety, depression, those sorts of things. And so they, they really act as that spoke or the hub or the hub in the wheel, I should say. The spokes come out of the hub. The, the clinicians act as that hub to assist people with connecting to services to support any of their needs. And so that really is the first stop. That's where you begin to get access to all of those. So is there anything that you would like to tell others who are trying to quit alcohol? Yeah. I mean, there's so much. and But yet I know they won't hear it. So this is what I always say. Life is way better on this side. There is a beauty to every day that doesn't exist when you're using. And I think some of the largest pain when you're using is the shame and that inability to look people in the eye. There's a freedom and a joy and a beauty on the other side of addiction that if you're willing to throw yourself into and get to, it is worth more than anything. But you have to believe it's there and that it, anyone can have it, and it is, and they can. And so you just don't give up, and you don't let, you don't let a stumble become a fall, you know? And, but you have to believe that if you throw yourself into it, I use AA, I, I, don't, I know it doesn't work for everybody, but it works for me. And I used to go to every meeting, and I used to sit where the promises were, and I'd read those promises every meeting. And they would say, you will know a freedom from insecurity that you have never felt before. You will begin to, you know, there in these promises, you will feel freedom from economic hardship and insecurity. And you will, you will feel relief from everything that has been painful and horrific in your life. And what you're doing when you're using is you're preventing the healing because to heal, you have to feel. And when you use, you don't feel and you don't process those negative, painful emotions, and they never go away. You drag them around like a sack that gets bigger and bigger. But if you choose to put that sack down, and, and you can't put it down at one time. Sometimes you can just take a couple things out of it at a time. But as you do the work, it gets lighter and lighter. And there's just, uh, there's just something so beautiful and amazing to absolutely every day in sobriety that I never felt before now. And I'll tell you something else. I don't think that people who have struggled through and survived an addiction, I think if you've never been through that, I don't think you can even begin to understand how beautiful life is. So for people out there that want to heal and want to be better, it's there, it's obtainable. All you have to do is ask for help and you ask for help and you don't stop asking for help. Even if you can't stop using, you just don't stop asking for help and you try to do a little better every day and you know that if you do what the benefit of that is is so overwhelmingly incredible and amazing. You believe that and you work towards that and that's what you do and you just don't ever give up. That's, that's really nice. That's awesome. Um, during COVID, are people still able to, if there's another shutdown, I mean, are those resources? We have worked so hard, at least in this community, to make sure that those services are available from before everything went into shutdown. Um, and so we have been really blessed here because it's obvious that there's a, a great mental health struggle going on across this country. Addictions and mental health go hand in hand, co-occurring disorders, addictions feed mental health, mental health affects addiction. And so those things are exacerbated in times of crisis, which this is. 
and now people are being forced to isolate. And so we have made sure that those services and resources are available, that remain available. We have crisis services that um, there's someone who understands and works with addiction available by telephone. We have services in person at this time with protocols in place, whether it be masks and sanitizer, an appropriate distance, etc. Um, for those that are uncomfortable or uh, should choose a different route, we also have um, services available by Zoom. We have services available by telephone. We even have, within this community and different departments, um, we have received funding and have purchased items such as iPads to distribute to people that are receiving services to ensure that they will have access. Um, and so we will make those services available to people in absolutely any way we can. Um, if they reach out for help, it's there. Welcome back. I have to say that I was so moved throughout that interview. Leah shared many powerful mindsets that she experienced and also witnessed through her involvement with the Healing to Wellness Court. Thoughts such as addiction generates shame and no one judges the addict more than we judge ourselves. We hate ourselves. We think there is nothing good in there. No one cares. The interview left me with such compassion and great admiration for Leah. She has gone through so much and has come out with such strength and determination. Dr. Maloney, what are your thoughts? Leah has a very powerful story and a very powerful message. And I think it's important to note how much value she found in behavioral health services. She does mention that it really helped save her life. And it's so important to her that she now works with the behavioral health department in what she does as the tribal judge and the judge in the Healing to Wellness Court. Asking for help at the clinic level is another matter entirely. When we screen patients for their annual wellness exam, they are only able to help, we are only able to help them if they answer the initial screening questions without fear or judgment. And because of this, it is a sensitive topic, it's really important that we show genuine compassion when screening our patients. Yes, and the patient needs to trust that there's no provider bias in any form. I recently had a situation or an opportunity through alcohol screening to refer a patient for treatment. The patient thanked me for not being judgmental and giving them an opportunity to share their secret safe. Our clinic uses ESPERT, which stands for Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment. It's an evidence-based approach to delivering early intervention treatment services for persons with substance use disorders. There is so much evidence to support ESPERT. In fact, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends that alcohol screening and brief intervention is implemented for all adults in primary healthcare settings because it is so effective at reducing the amount of excessive alcohol consumed, which will ultimately help to reduce the risk of cancer. Our staff have been trained in the ESPERT protocol for alcohol. We, fully, we have fully in, implemented the alcohol ESPERT as it not only helps to identify patients who may be drinking too much, but it also helps them as well. It includes a validated set of screening questions to identify a patient's drinking patterns, followed by a brief conversation with patients who are drinking too much. 
And for patients with severe risk, a referral to behavioral health is warranted. Our behavioral health department has a host of recovery resources. Programming is based on the 12 steps and also incorporates cultural and traditional teachings as well as part of the healing process. This includes exposure to the Ojibwe language, ceremonies, native values, and historical content through our cultural curriculum, which is also supported by our clinical approaches. Those are great examples. Um, I really appreciate the way your clinic and your behavioral health department work together. It's really wonderful that we have such supportive resources readily available for those who need them. In closing today's presentation, I would really like to thank Dr. Zesa and Dr. Maloney and give a shout out to all of our tribal partners across the nation to thank them for all the work that they do to support cancer prevention. Miigwech. For more resources and to obtain a certificate of continuing education, please complete the post-webinar survey which is available in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this presentation from the Three Fires Comprehensive Cancer Consortium.